You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, co-founder of UserWise and your host today. Uh, today, I'm really excited to be joined with uh, Mike Tom Canny. Um, Mike is a, a game designer doing a lot of amazing things with uh, hyper casual games lately. And I'm just super excited to, to dig into the world of gaming with you. Mike, welcome. Um, you know, to get started with, I always like to ask people, you know, how did you get into gaming? Like, well, like what's your story? What brought you to today? Hey, Tom, how's it going? What's going on? It's, I'm super excited to be here. So as you said, I'm Mike. I'm a, a game designer. I love making hyper-casual games, and I've been in this industry for over a good nine years. And, um, you know, I uh, had my ups and downs as anybody else, um, topping up credit cards, uh, bankrupting myself a million times, thinking about myself, you know, I can do this, I can make it, my game is going to make a million dollars. Like, you know, everybody started with that. So yeah, just um, enjoying hyper-casual. I think that, that's an um, interesting way of building, uh, building games, but also making money, right? I am. So when, when we say hyper-casual, what would you uh, define hyper-casual as? Well, certainly a business model, right? I can't think about it as anything else, as in like the first, right? It's, it's got to be, you got to understand that when you say hyper-casual, it's not a genre. It's not a type of a game. It's not a type of a development. It's, it's, it's pretty much nothing type of. It's, it's a way of, of um, you know, making money out of whatever the experience you built, primarily, obviously, mobile games, but it is a business. And I, uh, you know, it took me a while to figure this out. Although all the information is out there, you just have to fail a couple of times to understand that, hey, this is, um, this is very, very, very performance-driven way of building games and making money out of the games. And I'm you know, I'm not afraid to talk about money. This is the one of the things that, hey, people are kind of like, don't talk about money, don't talk about, dude, this is everything, everything, but, you know, don't talk about money. No, you have to talk about money. Like this is, this is one of the ways of building games and making living out of games is like, you have to think about money first there. Um, that's how hypercasual starts. You start looking at the KPIs, and you are like, oh, okay, well, certain KPIs, but like, what are these KPIs driving? What is the end result of all of this? Is, you know, you got to make sure it's profitable. It makes profits. I mean, we can talk about like a lot of ways of doing hyper casual games, but this is the first thing that comes into my mind. It's, it's a business model and it's got to make money. So when you say performance driven, it, are you thinking more about like, like a CPI or like a total LTV or like what exactly does performance driven mean? Well, look, let's let's um, let's address this kind of elephant in the room, right? The publishers, okay? Like I I give publishers a lot of credit, 
And I also understand the role of a developer in that relationship, right? So you see most of these hyper-casual games are in the top charts driven by, you know, uh, publishers. I would, I'm not going to name anybody, um, but you see these are, you know, um, accounts or portfolios with several, you know, um, 40, 50 different type of games, right? And these guys are there topping charts um, kind of regularly. So you can see like, okay, well, this is, this is not a small business. This is not a kind of a niche indie type of, a, uh, you know, experience. It's, it's, a, it's a big industry, hyper casual. And so, you know, when I say performance, the first obviously comes to your mind is like, okay, what are these guys are trying to squeeze out of it? What is the, what is the type of a profit they're looking for? Because you can go down to, um, you know, charts somewhere below 200, 500, you'll still find hyper-casual games, right? So when I'm talking about hyper-casual games, I'm really talking about games that are in top charts and driven mm. by huge UA campaigns. And that obviously means like, how do these guys get up there if, <coughs> you know, mostly these are 100% or, I don't know, 90 to 10 or... I don't know who does who does more in-app um, purchases, but um, you know it's mostly um, iApps, right? Sorry, the um, um, advertising, right? Yep. The monetization mm -hmm. driven by the um, advertising model, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at that and say, hey, well, if they're primarily monetizing through ads, uh, how are they? able to get to the charts? How are they get able to acquire that, that scale that high, right? Um, then, you know, you arrive to conclusion that, well, okay, well, it's, it's a performance. It's gotta be the CPI, as you mentioned, as we did buy, and the LTV is pretty much 100%, you know, ads. So this, 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 I've made this video on the, on the LinkedIn where, you know, it's a simple arbitrage. You buy and then you sell that space with the profit margin, right? So that's what I mean. It's a performance business. It's a it's a way of, you know, making that margin um, in basically the, the meantime, the moment where people don't want to commit to a series game, but they still want to play. So somebody's there figuring out how do we monetize this few minutes, this couple of sessions throughout a day how do we make money on that? And it seems like, well, it's, it's kind of a profitable business. That's really cool. Um, so something you mentioned earlier is that hyper-casual is this idea of a business model rather than a genre, which is almost what, different from what I've heard other places um, where like they kind of group all hyper-casual games together. Um, but looking at hyper-casual games, you know, as a business model, do you think that there are types of genres within it, or do you think that it's going to evolve that way over time? Oh, absolutely. I think there's there's like even the genres like um, you've heard the term ultra casual or mm -hmm. hybrid casual, or I mean, there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, buzzwords around this. But I, I think fundamentally, hyper casual is a is basically a business model where where the session link is, uh, is, you know, um, 
is a kind of few minutes, right? So let's say five to 10 minutes. Um, you have a retention that spans across 10 days, um, seven days. Some publishers have D0, um, but it's a, it's a short retention. Um, you could call it like, uh, you know, everything else is basically the long tail and the short, you know, the head is hyper casual. Basically they're, they're trying to uh, utilize that every second possibly monetize every second, right. Where you can have the player in your game. So within that, you could create any type of, uh, experience. You could see these ultra casual, there are almost no games like, and the way I define a game is basically having these, this uh, feedback loop with challenge, right? You gotta have a challenge in there, but you see yeah. over and over in charts games that almost lack challenge. There's almost nothing challenging you in there. It's just purely interactive experience with a feedback, whether that's visual feedback, it's an audio feedback, it's obviously interactable, but it's kind of lacking the, 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 the sort of a typical challenge that you find in the games. So yeah. I guess within the hyper-casual, you can find all type of genres. And my belief is that you can turn anything into hyper-casual, as long as your intentions are to figure out the true performance of your, your experience or your game. And you want to attach that to making money basically. So that's what I would define hyper-casual and that's what, uh, you know, you can turn pretty much any experience into hyper-casual. That's really Does interesting. Does that somehow answer? A little bit. I'm, I'm really curious how you would turn something into a, a hyper-casual game. That, so when you say anything, are you thinking of like other games or, you know, just life in general? Like, you know, I, I, play well I used to I, I've, I've quit the habit but I used to play a lot of Clash Royale um, but like is there a way that something like that could become a hyper casual game right so um, have you played I, I check charts pretty much every day but Crash Bandicoot right have you played Crash it is downloaded to my phone and set to be played but it has not opened it yet Right. You, you got to go through, basically what I do is every time I see sort of a casual, mid-casual, uh, mid-core, um, whatever type of a name beyond casual you want to give it, um, I look at the first five minutes. What's the, what's the experience first five minutes? And I always record myself. I always, you know, kind of uh, wait for the moment when I'm ready to have that five minutes recorded and then, then play it back and watch myself how I've, sometimes I even record myself playing. It's not just a screenshot, but I record myself actually playing. So I want to see the type of interactions with my fingers. And so sort of like where's things on the screen uh, uh, relative to my finger or to, to the, the gestures that I'm controlling the game and so on. But anyways, if you, if you, when you once you play it, uh, you realize that, Look, this first five minutes, it's hyper casual. And I don't know if there's any, you know, psychologically any hook where they form the sort of uh, 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 ability to monetize further on. Obviously, it's not monetized the way hyper casual 
is within, you know, usually 30 seconds, you'll see an ad. You don't see an ad in a, in a crash. But the way the first time user experience is done, the tutorial and the way they're introducing the UX itself is very much hyper casual. So if you wanted to take that first five minutes of, of uh, crash, you could certainly monetize that. Now, I don't know about the performance, you know, the retention numbers, but usually in the hyper casual, the retention is almost 100% driven by the core loop. Like the meta is there pretty much to drive, you know, uh, to drive organics and, and so on. But uh, this is how I kind of tackle hyper casual. It's like most of the retention is tied to the core loop. Right. Mm. So if you play crash, you'll figure out that the first time user experience is very similar. The onboarding is very similar to what, what you see in hyper casual. And think about people who play hyper casual. These are usually people who are not necessarily considered players, right? Could be anybody just switching in between the, you know, finding a game in the app store and being on TikTok or being on Instagram or being on any of the social media channels. So they're keep switching in between this entertaining channels, right? One moment it's uh, social media and another moment it's type of a game like hyper casual, right? And they're just spending two, three minutes here and there, here and there. You could do it for longer, obviously, but just think about like where these people are, what they're doing, and it's unlikely they're going to play triple A game. It's unlikely they're going to invest time into a new, you know, mid-core game or Forex game. It's just basically kind of an onboarding process to have quick, quickly fun. Mm -hmm. But within the game itself, you click on the ad and you kind of onboard yourself further to more serious games. So I definitely feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. That's really interesting. So taking that from a flip side, for everyone that's not making hyper casual games, you know, what are the things that you can learn from hyper casual in terms of like, like, I feel like one of the biggest challenges of any game is if you look at the first 10 minutes, typically you'll lose most of your users by like minute seven. Um, and so, you know, are there things that, you know, more traditional let's say just mobile free-to-play games could learn from hyper-casual in terms of like, how do I get users to that moment of, aha, this is actually kind of fun and worth my time continuing to play um, that maybe they don't have, you know, their tutorials have too many videos or other things like that are forced around and like players just don't feel fun and they just, you know, never open that game up again. Yeah, I, I think I already mentioned this, but... The first time user experience is is basically, you know, the the I say the the hyper casual KPIs are clearly basically demanded, right? So you have the CPI, that's your performance in the market, whether you can acquire users at scale. This has to work at scale. I mean, you could do it. Obviously, there are hyper casual. As, as I said, there are there are hyper casual games. Uh, down in the charts and they're kind of consistently there right but that just says like okay well the ability to scale go to top chart is not there at the beginning of that equation right mm -hmm. so the second part of that equation is ltv and the ltv is mainly relying on the the, the retention right um, you could still survive with a low retention and by low retention, what do I mean? Like in hyper casual, low retention is 20% D1, right? Um, that's something that 
it's pre, it's almost like guarantee that nobody's going to publish that game, right? Um, <laughs> so you you climb to thirty, people start paying attention. You get to forty, um, you know, people starting, uh, you know, bombarding you with messages on the LinkedIn. Everybody's <laughs> trying to grab a little bit, and then by the time you get to fifty, everybody is willing to publish your game, right? So the so the retention is very important in there. And in hypercasual, what I, from my own perspective, uh, the the first time user experience is is where a lot of hypercasual games make a problem, have a problem with retention, right? Mm. So it's either some kind of a user experience UX problem. It's um, sometimes it's a problem with the tutorial. Um, sometimes there's a problem with just generally understanding what the concept of a game is, right? Not everybody sees the ad, you know, in TikTok or elsewhere, right? If you haven't seen the ad, are you able to understand what the game is basically looking at from looking at just a static screenshot? Are you able to understand what's going on in the game? Are you able to figure, are you, are you able to figure out what needs to be done in this game, right? And most of these hyper-casual games are portrait mode, which is super simple because it's, you know, it, it's, it takes away that extra friction for you to play it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what, uh, you know, a lot of free-to-play games can, can, un- can gain from hyper-casual. It's like, look at the hyper-casual. There is <laughs> no, there's no landscape game in there. And why... Would anybody force people to do landscape if it's just a mobile, right? I understand iPads uh, where you've, you can have, a, it's primarily how you use iPad. It's in landscape mode, right? If the other way around is like, why would anybody force you to use um, iPad game in a portrait mode, which kind of, you know, it upsets <laughs> me because I'm like, what oh, you could think about it, right? This is just a natural way we use it. So, yep. um, the portrait mode. So the first time you experience the onboarding experience, the kind of tutorial, um, being concise and clear about the intention with the player, right? In the first few minutes, like you don't have to present the player with everything in the game. This this has been my problem a lot of um, for 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 a long time, right? I did not understand that you have to pace out these moments, right? These are sequence, sequences. You sequentialize the experience, right? You don't want to come into a building and everybody's like, hey, you got to go there, you got to go there, you got to go there. And then, you know, the other experience is like you go to a concert, you go to like the experience that we are used to in a, in a normal life. It's not like you know, everything's staring at you right at the moment. Like the worst thing is that you come somewhere and people are staring at you, right? This is, this is how you can think about those icons. You can look at those, those that UI and it's like, all of these buttons are looking at me. Like, what am I <laughs> supposed to do? Like, which one am I? It's cool to have the tutorial where they show you, you know, that little button there, here. Now click yeah. here, click there. But nobody wants to be treated like a kid. And I don't understand why this is to be a tutorial. Why do you have to feel like a baby? Why do you have to feel like, a, you know, I'm completely dumb. I don't know how to play this. Please show me where to click. 
And after the tutorial, I don't even remember where to click. So this is what hypercasual is fantastic. It's the onboarding. And we really utilize every, every single second of that time that player gives us. You know, that's, it's almost something that I think Apple has always really resided with me on. It's like, all of Apple's things, even like when you buy a computer that's ridiculously overpriced, but like you get it and the packaging is just like all seamless and it's like really white and like you pull it out and they've got, you know, little packages for things. And it's just really clear what everything is for and how it works together. And you can even see that like on their websites and things like that too. Um, And then, you know, sometimes you get into, I don't know, some like cluttered calendar or something. There's like colors everywhere and it's just a mess and you can't, you know, figure that out at all. Um, And I definitely, you know, got into some like 4X games that are like that. They've got like all this stuff all And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. And yeah, maybe the tutorial tries to bring me through, but then, you know, like I play Merge Dragons and that tutorial is amazing because they, they like throw you right into the little game thing and there's nothing you can do except like merge stuff around. And it's literally impossible to fail. Um, But like you learn the merging process by like playing around with it. And like you learn the mechanics you were like, oh, this is like kind of fun. Um, but they're not just like click here, click here, click, and you're just like mindlessly falling around, not reading anything either. So um, that's really great. So thinking about the first time tutorial a little bit um, and how it relates to retention, um, I've always heard a lot of people kind of say, well, retention is really just a good indicator of is this game fun? Um, And you kind of mentioned, you know, somewhere between 20% to 50% is where, you know, publishers really get interested in in, uh, publishing your game or whatnot. Um, But like, let's say I have, I don't know, 23, 25% day one retention. Um, Is that indicative that like this hyper casual game just isn't fun? Or, you know, is it a problem that something's wrong with my first time user tutorial? And if it is the tutorial, like, how would you go about diagnosing that and figuring out like what's wrong you know is there something that's just not clear to players is there something i could do better and you know maybe my retention could almost double yeah i i think you can't really define the fun by with number right like there, there's no really way to tell is this fun with this retention there's uh, all type of games there's all type of people everybody finds something right it could be a niche uh, with two, you know, twenty percent, it could be this is fun for some people that are able to overcome certain issues in the game, right? So it's not necessarily describing whether this game is fun or not, but what it does is it tells you how much friction is in the game, right? Because you could have a fantastic core loop, um, it could be funny, really funny, but. You just put few things in there that people don't get, right? You could put certain things that you see in, in, um, in casual games or, you know, RPGs are a great example of this. Like not everybody's familiar with RPG meta, right? People mm-hmm. just don't understand these mechanics. And we're talking about people that not necessarily play games. So the more friction you introduce at the beginning, that can result in dropping your retention, D1, D7. All of these things are impacted by how much stuff do you introduce? Like the example that you, you, you mentioned about Apple, I mean, who else does that type of stuff, right? 
I mean, it's handful. I've seen, like, I've got a lot of devices around in my office, but just Apple is like the box. Like I just purchased the M1, um, you know, Mac mini. I mean, the box is like exactly the size of the, of the, you know, of that device. There's almost no room spared for rubbish, right? <laughs> and somebody thought through this. Somebody thought, you know, how to open this box. You've seen boxes like, where do I open this stuff, right? <laughs> it's exactly the same with games. It's an experience, right? People think about how to put a, how to make sure that the unboxing therapy is fantastic, right? It just makes you feel like I'm close. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm having fun. I'm not struggling with the box, right? I'm almost there. I want to see this baby. (laughs) The same thing happens, right? You're sending people to your game through an ad, right? So think about the journey. There is already enough friction. They have to go to the app store. They have to click on the get button. They have to sometimes sign in. Then they have to install it, wait for, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. And then when they arrive in your game, is there any more friction? Or, you know, I'm introducing my pile of BS that I want people, because <laughs> you're going to play the game exactly the same way I say, right? But you have to account that there needs to be multiple ways that people figure out how to play. And you just want to allow the most easy the most kind of like the, the less friction possible, that's better for your numbers. So that's that's basically, you know, um, most of the, the D1 retention can be improved by just tutorial and the, the onboarding process. Um, and that's my experience. I, I happen to, you know, just look at the numbers, but you don't figure out anything by looking at the D1 retention. It's either good or bad, doesn't matter. So you're looking at the number, you iterate, you go back, look at another number after a second iteration, third iteration. It doesn't change. Nothing's going on because you're looking at the numbers. You're just like wasting all the time instead of going on <laughs> and handing, handing off the phone to somebody who would play your game or somebody who would be not expected to play your game, right? Hand it over. And that person is going to tell you more than any of your numbers. Like you could be running for six months, all your A-B testing, all your retention metrics. You can hand it over to your grandma and she's going to show, she's not going to tell you stuff, but she's going to, you're going to see how she handles the stuff. Or kids, kids are fantastic. I use, I use uh, like whenever I'm figuring out new stuff, I hand over the phone to my kids. Even though they're small, you can already understand, like, they look at it, they don't, they can't read, right? So no tutorial, no reading, no text is going to help. So are they going to figure it out or are they not going to figure out? If they don't figure out, then I am at fault. I'm the one to blame that I made an experience that people cannot figure out. It's probably for myself or probably for people of my type that are able to figure out. Or I'm completely biased. I've seen it so many times that I already feel like, well, I know how people, you know, people, people need, they will get it, right? They will get it for sure. But you hand it over and you figure, oh, I haven't thought about this stuff. Why? Like, you know, either the controls are somewhere misplaced on the screen, you know, I'm 
you know, often you cover stuff with your hand when you're holding the device. Oh, I haven't thought about this button. He can't see the button. It's underneath his, underneath <laughs> his thumb, right? Like these stupid mistakes, but they can be easily overcome by properly testing. So qualitative with quantitative, they have to marry each other mm. in order to create good experience, good D1 retention, fantastic FDE. Yeah, that's really great. So here's here's something to kind of challenge all that, um, especially in hyper casual. I hear you know it's about one out of fifty games that are made are actually you know worth promoting because the CPIs are you know low low enough below the LTVs that you can actually scale them profitably. Um, so what is the right ratio of you know when to go fast, when to move on to a new prototype versus when to spend time doing you know, fixing the tutorial and onboarding and all those things versus just move on to a, a new game. This one's kind of. A yeah, I, I guess. Um, um, I guess what's what's, um, you know, I've, I've been struggling with this at the beginning a lot, right? Because um, at the beginning, you have to take advice, but there's a moment where you realize, you know, the cost is on my end. This is, I'm financing this development. There's nobody else involved in this. It's my money that I'm putting in, right? Um, so, so you have to, at certain point, you, you have to stop listening and just listening to yourself. Don't listen to, at that point, don't listen to anybody else. At the end of the day, it's your business. It's, it's your, you know, your, um, your business on the line there, right? So, um, Let's say you start building hypercasual games. Whether your um, excuse me, there's a fly over here. Um, so let's say let's say you start your business and you have not been making games before, right? So you're literally a beginner, right? Um, I say listen to to publishers' advice. They got a lot of stuff going on in there. Uh, they they you know they have a. a all kind of uh, live streams. They, they have all kind of stuff going on where they educate you in terms of how to create these games, how to tackle certain KPIs. And um, there's this fly again, <laughs> excuse <laughs> me. Um, yeah, so, so listen, listen to, to those guys first. But if you're a studio, established studio, you have certain experience and you're deciding hey, for whatever reason you're going to do hyper casual games, then you already know that, you know, um, I can change things around, uh, test it a few times, but at some point you have to realize that these KPIs that, are you, that you're trying to meet, why are these KPIs? Why these particular KPIs, right? You have to realize that these KPIs are in place to provide the business for the particular publishers, right? For, let's see, these, these guys are at top, right? So you're, you're talking about metrics that are probably driving certain amount of revenue, certain amount of profits, right? So if you're an established studio and you realize this, that you're really feeding the beast, you're, you're there to feed the beast, right? It's not necessarily to keep you, um, keep you financially healthy because you could do it at a quarter of the performance. Let's say your game has a 20% D1 retention. Well, that's something to be just noticed, but not necessarily 
you know, uh, getting a publisher to be interested in that. But it doesn't mean that that game is not profitable. That does, doesn't mean that game cannot make money. Uh, it just means that with the type of people that you're trying to make the business, it's not going to work because those KPIs are not going to drive the performance that they are looking for, right? Mm. So you have to identify early on what your kind of you know, business, uh, let's say, objectives are. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to improve your pipelines, your development? Are you trying to get better? at making games, but also being able to pay your bills, making living out of it? <laughs> or are you necessarily trying to hit certain goals? You want to get a get to the top, right? You definitely know and understand how to iterate fast, how to be, you know, scrap things and, and change things around and, and get some, you know, unity asset stories, fantastic way to build games. I mean, you don't have to start building your things from scratch. If you are able to utilize that, if you have that kind of power, then iterating fast and killing games fast makes sense. But if you're in a stage where you're trying to understand what's going on, or you have been trying building these KPRs for some time and you've been scrapping these games a lot, so let's say you have you know, 10, 20 prototypes and nothing really scratched the surface, then obviously you're not learning. So you have to persist a little longer in order to figure out what moves the needle, right? Because that was basically my case where we, uh, in, back in the days in the company that I worked, we were struggling to figure out how do we get certain CPI? How do we hit certain D1 retention? Well, what I did was like, you know, for a second I stopped, I was like, why do we have to tackle both of these numbers at the same time? Why can't we just try first CPI and then we try to tackle D1 retention? And But that necessarily is not a way, well, back in 2018, no publisher was doing CTR tests, right? So if you said, hey, I, I actually have a game that is not a game, it's just a video creative that are recorded from a game to be, um, then the publisher say, well, come back when you actually have a published game because we don't do CTR tests. But nowadays, publishers do CTR tests so you can get an initial sort of MVP validation of your game. So am I, you know, trying the right idea? Will this idea be marketable? So you can create a video creative and see what the CTR is. So you can estimate what the CPI is going to be and once you've done that, you have certain validation of that idea. You can move to the stage where, this is what I call stage number two, where you actually start building an interactable experience, which is to be a game, right? And then you can uh, release that game and start measuring properly the CPI and get a picture of your retention, right? And what's fantastic about uh, Hypercasual is that the campaigns are pretty much at the beginning at, at the prototype stage, they're so broad that you get all type of people. So your retention is truly what it's supposed to be. Like it's, mm. you can't get a better retention than this. Like you're, you know, you're relying on Facebook to select particular people to end up in your game. And that's where you're measuring your retentions as opposed to, uh, you know, game where you target particular audience these are type of people that might likely to play my game. Therefore, mm -hmm. your retention is already skewed, right? 
Because if you send 200 people that are likely to play your game and 200 people that are unlikely to play your game, your retention is going to be much, much lower than if you send 400 people who would play your game, certainly, right? <laughs> so this is fantastic way of telling, you know, how scalable your idea is, but also getting a sort of early validation or your, on your idea, on your MVP, and you get more confidence to move and progress with your game, right? Um, but I would not necessarily say, you know, listen or don't listen to a publisher. You have to realize where you are at, what your skill set is. But it's not, you know, it's, it's not set in stone that publisher knows it all. In the end of the day, you're there developing the product. So you should probably listen to yourself more than you listen to to the publisher who may have agenda, right? They may say, well, you know, we like uh, like another prototype. It's like, no, you're not getting another prototype. I'm sticking to my guns. I'm actually going to iterate until, you know, I, I go bankrupt because I actually want to figure out how to move a needle. So if you move from a game to a game, it's unlikely that you're going to figure it out because, you know, you just always start, the, start from a scratch. You never kind of progress further. Yeah, get to that learning. I really like that. So um, thinking a little bit about like UA type testing, because I, I think this is a, again, getting back towards that money oriented type thing, which a lot of people don't like to talk about, but I, I think it is crucial if you're trying to build a studio where you can actually support a family and hopefully ultimately a, a team of employees with their families as well. Um, you know, let's talk about, you know, CTR testing, CPI type testing. Um, so you know, at what point should I start doing CPI testing? Is it before I even begin to build a prototype? Um, you know, what is the right time to do that? And, you know, you mentioned you've learned some things over the years, like are there ways that you can actually reduce the CPIs and what you're building and what you're showing to players? You know, the, the, this is hypercasual is fantastic in that, in that sense that, you know, you can work in a small team um, often you find hyper-casual games in top charts, and I say top kin, you find games that are built with one person, right? So that one person is wearing many hats, and that means even the marketing guy hat, right? Although you don't necessarily need to do that, that work running UA campaigns, but from my own experience, I like to do everything myself before I delegate things to people, right? So one of those things was UA. Like you have to understand how, what the publisher does once you hand over your game or once you hand over your creative, right? You need to understand like at, at least in a, in a kind of higher perspective, what, are, what is it that they do? Like it's not a magic formula. It's not a kind of like, you know, uh, a magic ring, they, they kind of just swing it around and it's just magic happens, right? No, it's, it's, it's actually pretty logical. So in terms of UA, if you do understand it, then, you know, if you have a bit of a money on the side, you can run this campaign yourself. Like this is the fun part that we are at as a game makers is that this is so democratized, this whole industry that Literally anybody can do it, right? And that's, you don't need anybody's permission to do so. Like you can build your game yourself. You can run marketing yourself. You can get paid 
And people will never know until, you know, you reach top charts. Everybody's going to be like, who is this guy? Who is this game? Who is this company? <laughs> Who's this studio? Who's this publisher? Like, where do these people come from? This is the fantastic part about, you know, the times we're living in, even with COVID, right? This is like anybody can do it. Uh, literally, like third, third world people can do it if they have the ability to program they have the ability a little bit of money on the side where they can you know have their account publish a game you know that this is the fun part so if you want to really understand ua it's unlikely that the publisher is going to tell you everything they do it's kind of their know-how <laughs> right yeah but you can certainly try and and it's not that hard to understand how the ctr and cpi results are you know you do need to understand these numbers so for cpi you actually need to have a game released but for the ctr you can just go to facebook all you need is basically have your creative have have your idea developed to the stage where you can record a video right so you, you record a video take that creative and uh, you know go to facebook and and start new campaign and literally, you don't have to target anything other than go to US, target everybody in US and launch that campaign, right? And you get certain numbers back from Facebook. Let's say your budget is five bucks, 10 bucks. It's still better to run campaign at that kind of a you know small budget and understand what the numbers, what Facebook is spitting out. What are these numbers that Facebook is spitting out and start kind of deconstructing like what's going on in here? What are these numbers? And somewhere <laughs> along the way, you find like CTR number or there's a number called result rate or there's a, even IPM number in, in Facebook. And that gives you an indication of how well your creative is converting. How well is your creative performing, right? Are people interested in this type of action that they see in the video? And if they are, then it's likely that your creative has something to it and somebody else mm -hmm. will be at scale interested at that, right? So, so just start getting kind of a, you know, understanding like what are all these numbers and what, how, how do I get these numbers? And mm. it's, it's, you know, publishers do it at scale. They do it, they, you know, high performance um, marketing. So that's UA. And then, you know, like, uh, for the CTR, you obviously need to send people somewhere from the campaign. So you can easily build a landing page similar to App Store. People just land there. Yes, you kind of trick people to land there, but you can also send them somewhere from that page. You could send them to another game. Uh, you know, people will be super happy if you send organic traffic and they don't even know where this traffic is. <laughs> well, guess, guess what? Mike is running in Slovakia campaigns and sending people to... I don't know, uh, Crash Bandicoot, right? <laughs> and he's paying for it, crazy monkey, right? But what am I getting? Well, I'm getting the conversion. I, I'm understanding what, what the performance of my creative mm -hmm. is. And that alone gives you an idea how the marketing itself works. Within the hyper-casual, there's everything. There's, there's this, then you have building a game, and then you also have the kind of, kind of a part where you monetize, like, you're expecting the publisher to know how to monetize your game. Why? You know, you should be able to understand like, okay, well, you play a couple of games and you see, hey, after every second level, third level, there's an interstitial. Well, that's probably where they make money. Then you have a reward video in there. You can literally 
get inspiration from all of these games that are already published to get an idea how the publisher is going to make money on your game. Or if you decide to do it yourself, you know, you can, you can get an idea how many ads you need to serve. Um, you know, you can see where the, the churn of your game is, when people leave. And within that period of time, you can kind of, uh, you can uh, figure out how many ads you need to have in there. And then you also see the conversion um, of those ads and see, you know, how much I'm making here. So you start slowly understanding what the publisher is going to do at mm -hmm. scale when they take your game. That's really great. Does that somehow answer? Yeah, no, that was that was really helpful. Um, so one one last little question on on CPIs. Um, so you know you mentioned you know sometimes you have a game that has kind of the lower D one retention, let's say like twenty percent, and and part of that might go in is you know there's always going to be a certain portion of the audience that enjoys your game, and probably a certain portion of people that will never enjoy your game, right? Um, and that's kind of where the targeted advertising comes in. Is there ever a case for like a hyper casual style game where that targeted advertising on the 20% of people that do enjoy your game makes sense? Um, well, I, I guess the question is why do people, like let's say the retention is, it's D1, right? That's the next day, 24 hours, right? <laughs> These people can come back in the same day it would still be within 24 hours, right? It would still be D1, but you also have D0, right? So you, you could go around this calculation as long as you want, but the point being is that why would 80% of people who click on your ad churn? Like, why would they, you know, that's the question, right? If they see your ad, what do they see in that ad that they're willing to go through the friction of going to the app store, click the get button, install the game, wait until it's installed, until it launches. Why are they willing to go through the friction and then churn? Like why? So if you kind of think like, think, think away, uh, if you think about this in a way that, well, that's just how it is. You'll never figure it out, right? You will never understand why the 80% churn. But if you think about it, they churn because they don't find that promise that you've given them in the ad. And you have to start searching for, for what this promise is in that ad, right? What is it that I'm promising? Not what I see in the ad. What is it that... I'm promising these people because could it be it could be completely something else that you have not thought about that these people think that going to be playing, yet they're presented with a different experience. And there's a there's a book, Jesse Shell. Um, he talks about uh, what the you know what what the game is. It's a, it's an experience, but. You don't design experience. That experience happens in your head. It's in the in, in your brain, right? It's it's the result of your game. It's not mm -hmm. what you've designed. It's the result, right? And that same thing applies for the creative. The creative that the people arriving in your game. That's the result of that creative. So, what is the true, true, true promise of that creative when people arrive to your game? I mean, yes. Casual people, 
complain that hypercasual are sending bad traffic. People that are, you know, you, we're unable to monetize these people. This traffic is rubbish, right? I mean, yeah, okay, well, that's your perspective. Our perspective is, uh, is like, we are able to monetize these people. You're not. <laughs> it's not yeah. a problem with the people. It's a problem with your product, right? Mm -hmm. So th that's the way I kind of look at it. So um, you never know. Like, we are often kind of cocky. We're sort of, you know, um, sort of uh, aggressive with our stuff. But there is likely... Uh, other outcome of our action, right? That we're not thinking about. And that's where the sort of like usability tests, these qualitative tests can provide you with additional information that cannot be quantified, right? You look at these tests and you figure out, oh, no number is gonna ever give me this type of answer, right? No yeah. number, like I haven't thought about this stuff. Like I've seen my... <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. I've seen my wife play a game in a way that I would never thought of. She's not a gamer, right? But you hand it over to her and she's like, well, you know, she start dragging a finger around and like, geez, uh, just, you know, <laughs> do it properly. It's like, well, I'm doing it properly. This is how I play my game, right? So if you're trying to force people to play your game one way and they really want to play it another way, and you don't allow them, well, then expect them to churn. And that's, that's, that's what I kind of believe is that there is no such a thing as a bad traffic. I love that. Cool. Well, Mike, I, I know we're just about at time here. So I, I always like to ask one unofficial question at the end, since this is the Master and Retention podcast. Um, but what's one tip or trick you found uh, to help boost uh, retention rate? It could be early, late, you know, anything like that. How do you get people to stick around longer? Um, usability test. It's basically a way of observing people, how they play a game. I mean, uh, this, this really, like you could spend six months trying to iterate your game. Um, you know, in the publisher's guidelines, it's often say, hey, we are two weeks and move on or one month and move on. But if you stick a longer, you figure out that, well, you know, the numbers don't tell me anything. Maybe I should change the way I figured this stuff out, the way I look at this, just, you know, kind of zoom out and see how this whole hyper-casual business is conducted, who you're targeting. This is why you need to understand the UA. It's literally as broad as possible, right? They're really trying to, you know, uh, uh, get everybody to play your game. I know it sounds ridiculous that we're building games for everybody, but yes, that's the intent. That like we're trying to build and acquire everybody when it comes to scale. Um, and if you zoom out, you figure out, like, well, you know, I'm probably not thinking about the, the you know, 50 year old guy who is standing in the bus stop and he's likely to play my game because he's seen an ad but he's not necessarily, you know, good at controlling stuff or understanding how games are played mm -hmm. and so on. But seen an ad, he's likely to click the install button. But once he ends up in the game, is he going to be able to play it? I don't know. How do I figure out? Well, you can try it. 
You can go run the UA, get the number. The guy is not there. He turned. Um, how do I do this again? Like, how do I get that guy? Well, it's probably the way you would do it in a real world. You want somebody to try your physical product. You hand it over. You huh. get that physical thing and see whether people are going to figure out. Like, this is, I know we're pretty much living in this digital world, but the physical world provides so much answers, right? So take a phone, hand it over to people, and you figure out, figure out a lot more than running your first UA campaign with the retention metrics. Um, usability test, that's what I do, and that's how I've been able to kind of consistently improve um, retention metrics. Um, I even help people to do that, right? And when I show them like usability test, they're like, whoa, 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 we have not thought about this. It's like, wow, it's <laughs> simple, right? It makes sense. Um, also, uh, not a, not a uh, part of that is like, literally there's so much waste out there. It's just because people don't think about how to improve the retention metrics other than, you know, uh, change something and hand it over to a publisher. You will run a test that spits out the numbers and it just goes on and on and on in this loop, but it really never changes anything, right? So if you really want to change your numbers, observe how people play your games and you get so much more answers than looking at the numbers. That's fantastic. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. I always love chatting with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Um, if people have any questions or follow-up, is, is there a good spot for them to reach out to you at? Oh yeah, absolutely. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I have a big mouth. I upset <laughs> people, <laughs> but um, I, I like to talk. I, uh, I have, uh, you know, I have uh, my own opinions that are not necessarily, um, you know, aligned with other people. But the point is I'm searching for the truth. I'm searching for a ways to, you know, improve, to get, to get better. And um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you find me talking there. I don't mean bad. I'm just kind of a, aggressive in my opinions and I, I can back them up. So uh, if, if you want to have a chat, I'm always open to have a chat on LinkedIn. Uh, you find me on LinkedIn, um, Michael Tomkini, M-I-C-H-A-L Tomkini. I'm Slovakian. So, uh, yeah, that's how my name is spelled, but, I, but I'm used to Mike. Um, yeah, Tom, this, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank, thank you for inviting me to, to this podcast. And, man, I loved the last podcast with, um, um, what is it, uh, Caitlin Kincaid. Oh, oh, that yeah. was fantastic. Everyone should check that one out, too. It's Man, Game economy that, design is crazy. I, I love it. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a load, a load. Like, I go back to that just like, I've missed this. I missed this. Fantastic, <laughs> man. Keep going. Keep going with this. I love it. Great stuff. Cool. Well, thanks, Mike. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Take care, Tom. <laughs>